To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This ends the reading of God's word. Children ages three through kindergarten are dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. It is a double joy to be here to worship with you and have my son and his wife here with us. Thank you guys for being here. Love you very much. It's a joy to worship the Lord over the Word. Would you pray with me as we seek God's help to understand this glorious and high passage? Pray with me once again. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, by the Holy Spirit, would you come and fill me up with gifts of teaching and prophecy, insight and wisdom? Would you fill the people listening both here and by live stream with gifts of discernment and understanding and wisdom and application? Would you instruct us by the Holy Spirit to know, to love, to adore the vision you give to us here of loving our enemies? And for those in this room and in the hearing of my voice who have not yet trusted in Christ, would this be the day that they would trust in you and find, even without their even trying, a love for you that overflows in a love for their enemies. Surprise them by that. Surprise us by that now. Don't just help us to understand what this word says. Work it in us. Make it alive and achieve in us exactly what it commands. Through Christ I pray. Amen. Next week, here at the landing, we begin a three-sermon series on who we are as a church. What are we doing here? Why are we a church and why would we want to continue worshiping here? Why might we build onto this building? Why might we dream about planting a church? What is our vision? Three Sundays on that, starting next Sunday. After that, Lord willing, I'll begin a series of sermons in 2 Samuel. I did 1 Samuel. We met David, Jonathan, all the characters and people of Israel's history there now for 2 Samuel, starting three weeks from this coming Sunday. So as I was asking the Lord what to preach on today, I had no idea that what he would ask me to preach on is something he's been working in me for 25 years. I just asked the Lord, what do you want me to say? It's, it's Labor Day, there's going to be hardly anybody there. What do you want me to say? It's just one Sunday, it's, it's Lord's Supper Sunday, what, what do you want me to say? And Pastor Andrew and I have, have thought and prayed a lot about the fact that we're entering into a, a political um, season and, and we grieve over how even so many Christians can be 
uh, bitterly at enmity with each other, and, and the whole country can be at enmity with each other. So that was one thing that we think and pray about a lot, how to address that in some way and some fashion. And then you may know, many of you I hope do know, and I hope you begin to pray for me and, my, and for my family, that two of us from the church here are leaving to go to a war zone in January. I've been asked to speak at a student theology and pastors conference in Lviv, Ukraine in January of 2024. So that's a really good reason to pray for the war to be over by then, or that God would direct the flight of drones and missiles and bullets and airplanes. What they asked me to speak on was this passage, love your enemies. What do you say if Ukrainian students and pastors and Russian students and pastors are gathering at the same pastor's conference in Eastern Europe and the charge is to read this passage and proclaim love your enemies? What do you say? Well, I'm giving you today what I'm going to say. And then the third thing that's combined together is that there is in me and maybe there is in you this, this overwhelming need to have the miracle happen of putting all vendettas, all vengeance, all bitterness, all grudges aside. How do you live the Christian life without being ticked off and angry at somebody? It's walking hypocrisy for me to go around and tell people, Jesus is great. Trust and love him, follow him, and me have vendettas in my heart. Or you. So the Lord put me with a bright shining light onto Luke 6, 27 through 36. Jesus is preaching his greatest sermon. It's captured by both Matthew and by Luke. It is so glorious, so high, and it feels so untouchable that three errors in interpreting it have been offered frequently and constantly. I'm going to name them and set them aside so you know that I don't hold to any of these. And in doing so, I'm hoping you'll join me in setting these three errors aside. First, some stifle it. They set it aside. This is, this is nuts. This is crazy. This is foolish. Who could do this? Just get rid of this. Let's not even talk about this. Don't even put it on a mug. Don't even put it on a wall hanging or a t-shirt. This is just crazy. Love your enemies. Stifle it. That's one. Separate it. There's a more clever way. Some say, well, isn't it just part of the law and we're not living under the law anymore? So we, we close it. We edit it out. We mute it. It's just not part of life anymore. The problem with that is Jesus said, you know this well in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus isn't setting or separating anything he says from our hearing. The third error is to shrink it. This is maybe the most common. To shrink it down to merely a suggestion. The Lord of glory says, love your enemies. The sovereign Lord of glory to whom all of us must face one day, no matter what we think, believe, or do, he says, love your enemies. And we say, that's a good suggestion. I'll think about that. Reduce it down just to a mug or a t-shirt or a wall hanging or a commencement speech. That's not what this is. We can't just reduce it down to a lifestyle that just helps us get along. And in that third group that shrinks it down, they say, don't be so rude as to ask someone to repent of their sin, be born again and filled with the Spirit. Just take the suggestions, the coaching Jesus gives for a 
unpleasant life. This is one of them. I set all three of those aside. I hope you do too. How then do we obey the impossible? (laughs) How to obey the impossible? In the previous verses, from what Howard read, verses 24 to 26, Jesus has just spoken warnings and woes to unbelievers who love money and love the power they have through doing evil. He just said woe to them, which means judgment, God's going to judge you for acting that way. People across the face of the earth should hear, Jesus comes to them and says, you in power who use your power for evil, woe to you, you will die eternally. Then Jesus turns to those who follow him and he says, but, now I'm going to switch, Jesus says, big change. I say to you, and there's an emphasis in the original language under the you, now I'm talking to you, you who love me, you who choose me, you who believe me, you who follow me, you who hear Do you see that in your version? It's in every good version. You who hear, it is not you who have ears and can tell what I'm saying, but you who love me and love God and love the way I teach and want to follow me. That's what hearing means to Jesus. He says to all those of us who love him, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, And that's an instruction impossible to obey by the natural man. In fact, a natural person thinks this is the most ridiculous thing in the world. It is foolish. It sounds to them like a setup for another failure, another loss, another experience of weakness or victimization. This seems like the worst thing to say to someone who's experienced pain and victimization. Oh, sure, set it up so they do it again to me. That's what you're saying. Doormat theology, you've heard this. That's not what Jesus is saying. He hates that. To capture what Jesus is saying and to see it worked in our lives, I have three words that summarize Jesus' sayings in a a flowing, thematic way. Three words, love, grace, and sons. Love, grace, and sons. Love first. Look at verses 27 to 31. Here's where Jesus defines what he means by love. But I, 27 says, but I say to you who here love your enemies, and here's the first definition of love, do good to those who hate you. He's making the assumption everybody knows what good is. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. That was a legal terminology in a court of law where striking on the cheek was appropriate. It's ultimately Jesus who takes the cheek striking for us and and in our place. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic, give the other. Another legal term. It's not that all the most faithful followers of Jesus are walking around naked. It's that there is a giving of both clothing pieces to the person who was without clothing. Verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them, the golden rule. No one experiences this paragraph with joy. It's it's welling up in me with joy, not because I've done this perfectly or even begun to do this well, but because I want to be the kind of person who does this. I want to follow Jesus so closely that this marks me who I am. So you're going to say, all the while as we're studying this passage, Lord, I I think there is some kind of enemy love within me, but I want you to grow it. I want you to expand it. I want you to enlarge it. This love always seeks to do good to others. 
Verse 27, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Jesus never means by this, let abuse continue. He never means by this teaching, abuse is to be enabled or tolerated. No, if you're experiencing abuse, myself and this church will separate you from that abuser as instantly as we find out and we'll bring in authorities if we have to. Why? Because doing good for your abuser and for the victim, whoever that may be, always includes ending the abuse instantly. That's what Jesus is doing. You can see that all through Jesus' ministry. He comes up to the abusing Pharisees and he stops them dead in their tracks. John the Baptist, just before he lost his head, literally, went up to Herod and said, you can't have her. She's not your wife. You can't abuse her. She's not your wife. Jesus hates abuse. What he's after here is a spirit, a mindset, a heart intention that says, I am not going to return evil for evil. The whole world does that. Every religion, every orientation, every system, every philosophy that man invents assumes that every person wants their own selfish well-being and responds with equal justice in return for wrongdoing. Every religion. Except Christ. Christ alone comes and says, I'm asking and commanding and enabling my disciples to follow me and love my enemies, doing good to those who wrong them, because that's what I did when I came to earth. I came to love my enemies. So the Apostle Paul makes this explicit at the end of Romans chapter 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can see what Paul is drawing out from Jesus' teaching here. He's saying, if you do kindness for someone who has wronged you, their sense of right and wrong, their innate sense of what is good and evil, will convict them that you're not returning the same thing that they leveled upon you. They know full well what they leveled upon you, and you surprisingly are being kind in response, and that will bring conviction like burning coals upon their head. It's also God who withholds and mercifully keeps his wrath until the final day, but there will be a day when God will level out his wrath upon all human beings. Those in Christ will be protected and saved from it. Those who have rejected Christ will endure it forever. If you stop and say to yourself, okay, God, you're sovereign, you run the world. Things happen in the world not by happenstance or accidents or, or silly, crazy chaos, but you order the world after the counsel of your own will. What others mean for evil, you mean for good, says the Lord through Joseph in Genesis 50, 20. And here you say, you have wrath. I know that you will set all things to right one day. I know that you're going to shout the secret conversations from rooftops one day. I know that you're going to bring about a just and wrathful response to every wrongdoing. And so that gives me and should give me the confidence to say, then I'm free to love even my enemies today because my faith in God is that big. 
that kind of love for God is behind Jesus' command to love your enemies. But right here at this point, you immediately begin to think, hmm, am I the enemy that needs loving? Or am I always in the right? We love to put ourselves in the right, and those who oppose us are the enemies. Well, that's true. That's how Jesus is applying this. But what about me being the enemy? Who has to love me because I've wronged them? And and what about my wronging God, which all of us have done? How is it that God can love once I've come to the discovery that I'm his enemy? And then all of a sudden you realize every person outside of the Trinity that God has ever loved has been enemy love. Every person that he's ever loved, he's loved because they are a sinner and broken in a fallen world. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5 says. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's love for the fallen world is all enemy love, and therein is the beginning of your enemy love. Here's what the Lord's showing me. This is my personal testimony and biography from this passage. The more God's love is poured into me, the more I can imagine myself praying and even speaking and acting with kindness and blessing toward those who I'm convinced have wronged me. Not only that, to think that that happens is so exciting, it fills me with joy. This is a dividing line. Unbelievers hear this passage and they go, this is ridiculous. You are crazy if you're going to ask me to love my enemies. Do you know what my enemies have done to me? There is no way I'm going to do this. And believers go, this is impossible. God, if I'm going to do this, you're going to have to put it in me to do this. I can't do this on my own, but I'm willing. I'm willing. I'll come to you. I'll come to the word. I'll come and I'll sit at the table. I'll gather in this worship service in this high moment with God's people. And I will say, Lord, I don't have the resources in me to love my enemies, but you say I must. Please supply what you command. I wonder if you pray that way. Supply what you command. And he will. Grace. Can't believe it. Verses 32 to 34 use the word grace, charis in Greek. You know this word. It's a beautiful, big Greek word. We talk about it all the time. Charis. It should be translated grace because it clears up a massive misunderstanding that that shows up three times in these three verses. Verses 32 to 34. I'll read them and I'll show you the word that ought to be translated grace because it's charis. That's what the word is in Greek. And then I'll try to make a guess as to why it's not. (laughs) If you love those who love you, what benefit... Grace is that to you. You see how it can be confusing? If you just want to love your enemies so that you look really good, I I just look like a pastor who's got it figured out. I look like a Christian who's got it figured out. I I look like I'm heaping burning coals on their head. I got this all figured out. I got the inequities going. I'm way up here. They're way down here because I loved them, like the Bible says. So they're the problematic ones. I'm the perfect and holy one. Got that figured out. That's my benefit. That's my credit, some translations say. The word is, you're living by grace if you love your enemies. Do you see the difference? 
You've got nothing of any virtue or excellence within yourself if you love your enemies. Let me say it this way. Loving your enemies isn't for mature Christians. It's normal baby Christianity that every Christian does. Same thing, verse 33. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit, grace, it's charis, is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Unbelieving sinners just love each other when they scratch each other's back. Of course that's the way it is. That's the way all human beings are apart from the saving grace of God. But if grace is at work in your life because God has poured it in and it's pouring out through you to your enemies, then it's a demonstration of grace, not a demonstration of your virtue and excellence and pride, religious pride. So ugly. Verse 34 says the same exact thing. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit? Why did they switch? Who knows? It's, it's not credit. It's charis. It's grace. Three times. Grace is that to you. Even sinners lend to sinners. What's stunning is when the grace of God is at work in you and righteous people lend to sinners expecting nothing in return. That's stunning. A month ago, Islamic militants in Sudan got a hold of rockets that they could launch from the back of pickup trucks. I've seen those pickup trucks. I stayed in a village that was just over the border from Sudan. These rockets were firing and they would open up into several different um, pieces of hot shrapnel so they could shoot them toward a village, a, a collected Sudanese village with moms and little kids and grandfathers and grandmothers and people working, they could shoot it toward a village that had a Christian in it or was known as a Christian village and they would blow up the whole village or at least harm and maim many in that village. That's been happening for about a month in this region of Sudan I read last night and the authorities in Sudan, the government authorities are actually capturing these, these uh, rocket shooting Muslim extremists. And they're putting them in jail. They're putting them in jail nearby the very villages where they had uh, blown up with rockets and then come in and uh, committed all manner of other sins upon those villages. What do you think the village members are doing who are still alive? Since there's no food or water given to prisoners, they are taking food and water and the gospel to the prison jails where the prisoners are who had wronged their village members, Christian village members, both with rockets and with other evil deeds. And they're feeding them and they're giving them water and they're giving them the gospel. That's what Jesus is talking about. On a personal level, on a community level, on a national level. Grace is the waterfall in your life from God out of which you give a cup of cold water to the person who has hurt you, wronged you, harmed you? Is your life guided by a slow burning fire of revenge? Are you angry at the world or at a parent or at a boss or at a lost love or at God? Fly to Christ. Don't try on your own force different emotions towards someone who has wronged you. Fly to Christ. Receive His grace fully and immediately. Receiving grace is always a prerequisite for giving grace. 
That's why the first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's always followed, never preceded by the second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Enemy love is just another form of loving your neighbor. Sons. Love, grace, sons. Verse 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great. Now here's the motivation. You will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. If you had breakfast this morning or a good sleep last night or if you enjoy the summer day in Duluth, Minnesota or you can open your lungs and take a breath or if your brain has eight or ten thoughts per second, if you have any blessings in your life whatsoever, it's because God is merciful to the ungrateful and the evil of which you and I are numbered. We who know him, we who love him, we who have called on his name, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, are out of our orphan status called sons. Men and women both called sons, both given high standing before the Most High. He's the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one who will have wrath against those who've wronged us. We don't need to. We can love them, and even our loving them increases their guiltworthiness before his wrath. We are called to love our enemies with the joy of knowing that we're sons. If I can love my enemy, I'm now acting like my father who I now look like. And that brings joy. Listen to the verses just up up above where we're looking at, verses 22 through 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. The natural man is full of grudges and never knows this joy. The believer who says, this is impossible, Lord, but I love this and I want to grow in this. Please help me supply what you command, begins to know the joy of loving your enemy. So I have prayed for my enemies. I think I still have conversations that are yet to come with some of them. They might be weird, but they should happen, shouldn't they? You'd say to me they should. I'm saying don't leave this room with a vendetta. Don't don't leave this table with any grudge against anybody. Not God, not your family, not anybody. If you are a son of God by faith in Christ, residing within you is the Holy Spirit of God to enable you to love your enemies as he does. Louis Zamperini was an Air Force bombardier in World War II. He had been a troubled youth. He was always getting in trouble in and out of jail. He also was a decorated Olympian in running, but when his plane went down 800 miles away from his base in Hawaii in the Pacific, he relied on his running self-discipline to conquer and survive for 47 days on a life raft. On the 48th day, he and another man were rescued by the Japanese and taken prisoner. The only thing worse than being eaten by sharks in the Pacific is being taken prisoner of war in Japan. For several months, he was brutally mistreated. When the war was over, he hated his captors, was filled with anger, decided to drink himself into a blind stupor every day. And not many years later, his wife, just about ready to divorce him, went to a Billy Graham crusade and got saved. And she came back that night and said, Louis, I'm not divorcing you. Praise the Lord. 
Eventually, she dragged Louis to a Billy Graham crusade. He got saved, and then he bought a Bible, and he went out, read it the next day, and he writes this, or he says this, I bawled like a baby when for the first time I read the Bible and knew every verse was for me. Zamperini genuinely then wanted to return to Japan the first time he wanted to go back to Japan since the war. He wanted to find his captors who had tortured him for months and forgive them, and in 1998 he did that. He said, I've been saved from so much sin, I only want to pass that along to those who've sinned greatly against me. In 1998, several of his torturers actually met with him. He hugged them. He forgave them all. Some of them became Christians at that gathering. The main one, the one who had hurt him the most, a man called the bird, wanted to be there. Wanted to be there. But his adult grandchildren, the bird's adult grandchildren at the time, knew that if he went to this now publicized event in Japan and admitted what he had done two generations before, he would be brought up on war crimes and put in prison. So his grandchildren didn't let him attend. Louis still forgave him, though they never met. Love your, and what would the world be like? What would Duluth be like? What would your family structure be like? What would your life be like if you said, Lord, I can't do it on my own, but I resolve as you help me to love my enemies? What would Eastern Europe be like? What would Africa be like? What would this country be like? Apply this three ways. If God is sovereign over your personal life, your personal past, If you've been spared God's judgment because you're filled by his grace, then love your enemies personally the way God loved you. Do not live in anger. Do not hold grudges. Second, Jesus' teaching on civil government cannot be aligned with any political party nor the myths that we have been duped and and lied to about right and left, conservative and progressive. All those are false and misleading. King of France put that in place in the 18th century. We've been duped by it ever since. Jesus says all government is established by God for good. Pray for leaders. Obey their good laws. You know what they are. Respectfully voice disapproval for their bad ones. When I travel to Ukraine, it's not my job to build up the Ukrainians and to dismiss the Russians. No, in fact, I believe the Russian president is the aggressor. But that's not because he's Russian. It's because he's proud and greedy. Every believer we meet there, we, as we do, we must come to this passage and say, I want to love my enemies as you love me, Lord, but I can't unless you help me. How can I do these things? It's only one way. Turn to Christ. Sit before the Savior and say, while I was still a sinner, you died for me. I receive your grace. Would you pray with me? So, Lord, I know what you would have had me say today. And now there I have said it. Speed it on into the hearts of all those for whom you intend it. Bless this body. Bless those whom we interact with as we go from here. Bless our meal that we share together before all that. And higher than that, bless this meal, this bread and this cup which is you loving your enemies. We who have trusted in Christ ever in our lives come now to this table and we're reminded of what you've done for us when you loved your enemies on the cross. We're reminded that you took our sin upon you and it broke your body 
and it spilled out all your blood. And when you allowed your body to be broken and gave your blood to be poured out, you not only took our sin from us, but you gave to us your righteousness. This great exchange we now celebrate by the taking of this bread and this cup. Anyone who's called on your name. And then we will go out from here. And miracle of miracles, you will pour into us by your spirit love for our enemies. And there will well up within us a joy that we are not phonies and the gospel is not merely a story and you are not a phony and you really lived, you really died, you really rose again and you're really listening to us when we talk to you. And you're really here. Gather us to this table, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.